0: This morning, we start a new sermon series looking at uh, instances where the risen Jesus encounters people uh, after the resurrection. Uh, And we begin on the road to Emmaus, which happens, uh, which Luke records in the 25th chapter of Luke, verses 13 to 35. And we read this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Maus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, seen, uh, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us. Some of those who were there with us went to the tomb and found that just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are too often oblivious to the obvious goodness of God. In college, I was blessed to study in uh, New Zealand, which is a country very far away. Uh, Its closest neighbor is uh, Australia. It's in the South Pacific, very South Pacific. Uh, So I was able to study there for a semester and experience uh, that country's natural beauty firsthand. It's kind of renowned for Uh, basically everywhere being beautiful over there it's practically impossible to ignore the splendor uh, of the landscape there's bright green hills that meet deep blue rivers and oceans there's white capped mountains that tower over golden farmlands even the weather seems designed to overwhelm you with god's creativity it's just a beautiful place to be so when I, was in, when I was invited on my first hike with a few other Americans, uh, I was pretty excited that I, would be, uh, I was going to immerse myself in what so far I had only seen from a bit of a distance. We started on the somewhat easy Mount Summers subalpine walkway. Now that sounds impressive, but it's not Everest or anything like that. Uh, it, but it was great because the physical exertion promised a genuine reward The view at the top was said to be spectacular. You would walk and you would climb into the top Uh, uh, from a clear day. You could look across the entire Canterbury Plains and see the Pacific Ocean. Or if that wasn't, you know, great enough, you could turn around and you could look at something called the Southern Alps, which is this beautiful mountain range almost always capped with snow. So our first day it was uh, filled with genuinely breathtaking views. Almost everywhere you looked, it was just beautiful. I have pictures, if anybody ever wants to see them. And they're actual pictures, because we didn't have digital cameras way back then. Uh, every, uh, every vista, like every corner on the trail, sort of inspired us to climb higher. But on the second day, as we were climbing up to where the view was supposed to be spectacular, this cloud descended on the trail and within minutes, everything, I mean everything, the mountains around us, the plains that were supposed to be below us, mountain flowers and trees that were not even 10 feet away, uh, was hidden by this dense gray fog. Now we knew that there, were, there was beauty out there somewhere beyond the clouds, but we just couldn't see it. And because we couldn't see it, our mindset began to change. Without the view to inspire us, our packs suddenly felt heavier. We noticed how hard it was to actually just climb and climb and climb. The hike began to feel more like a chore, and we lost our sense of adventure. When we finally reached the marker, explaining how far we would see if the cloud wasn't there, uh, frustration sank in because we just, literally, it was like I was standing just in front of gray. That was all I could see. Disappointed, we wandered back to the cabin. We went to bed early and prayed the fog would be gone the next day, but it wasn't. Eventually, we climbed down out of the cloud. So in our scripture today, the two disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus experience a similar sense of frustration, of not being able to see something wonderful that's right next to them. But they experience it on a much deeper level. See, their disappointment at the death of their rabbi hadn't just altered their plans, but kind of collapsed their identity and purpose. Jesus, their their leader, their, their teacher, their friend, had been brutally crucified, murdered by Roman and religious authorities three days earlier. Contrary to his earlier promises and their own hopes, he had not established a new reign as king. He hadn't overthrown the, the Roman Empire. He hadn't cleansed the religious system of corruption. His death appeared to contradict, even directly refute, everything they believed about their former rabbi. Everything about Jesus, everything about his teachings and why he'd come, death seemed to have robbed it. Was he the son of God or was he just a man? From their perspective, the death of Jesus on the cross and his failure to return to life confirmed he had not been the Messiah. He might have been an insightful teacher, a moral genius, but he hadn't been the one promised by God to save his people. Horrible as it was for the disciples to consider after his death, maybe what the Pharisees and scribes said about Jesus was true. Maybe he was an insane man guilty of blasphemy. The reevaluation of Christ's identity also compelled them to reconsider their own decision to follow him. Think about it from their position. Had they been tricked into becoming disciples of a lunatic? Was he just some prophet? Maybe he was some religious con artist, and if he was, he had ruined their lives. How much had they sacrificed just to follow him? They gave up well-paying careers and jobs. Many of them had already been employed doing things that they loved or at least were good at. And they left their friends and their family, their community, their homes at this first request of a pretender. And what were the benefits of being a disciple of Jesus? They followed him around the country for little reward and no pay. They endured so much more. They were called names. They were run out of towns. They were laughed out of synagogues. They had ruined their own reputations. And it seemed like in that moment that they condemned their own future. Worst of all, and this was serious for most of them who had grown up in the Jewish faith. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, they might actually have been walking on the wrong side of Yahweh. It meant that they too might be guilty of blasphemy, of directly rebelling against their God. Their whole lives depended on answering one question. Who actually was Jesus? Struggling to find an answer after his death, and even hearing rumors that he had risen from the women that had returned from the tomb, they began walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which was about seven miles. And that is where Jesus found them, in a state of extreme depression and confusion. Perhaps they had family waiting in Emmaus. Maybe they were running away. We don't actually ever learn why they're walking away from Jerusalem to Emmaus. But it should not have taken two disciples used to traveling on foot an entire day to walk those seven miles between towns. My wife and I, we are not marathon runners. We are not very great at running. In fact, I kind of Hate it, right? It's not great. We are normal people. We can run about three miles in an hour, maybe two, okay, an hour and a half. <laughs> Jesus found these two disciples who were used to doing this, wandering. Not leisurely, like a, like a nice stroll, but they were walking with faces downcast. Their hearts were heavy, and so it took them time to travel that distance. Again, think about it from their perspective. For them, it felt like their world had fallen apart. Nothing mattered anymore. Lost in a fog of confusion, their shock and despair at the death of Jesus prevented them from noticing anything and everything around them. So overwhelmed were these two disciples, they couldn't even recognize Jesus, their friend, when he came to walk beside them. Perhaps, though, their lack of recognition shouldn't come as that much of a surprise. The disciples, for most of the Gospels, were never very quick to understand who Jesus was. Their understanding of Jesus's identity had always been kind of fragile. Even when he walked with them, performing miracles and and challenging the Pharisees, healing disease and casting out demons, calming storms on the ocean and listening to to parables and to his teachings, they were always slow to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as their Lord. Remember, it took a long time for even Simon Peter to say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord, you are the Son of God. The confusion that filled their hearts hadn't just appeared at the sudden death of Jesus, it seemed to have been with them all along. Sadly, we carry that same blindness in our own hearts. Long ago, doubt crept into the heart of humanity with the nagging question, does God really mean what he says? That was the first question that the serpent asked Eve and Adam so long ago. Did God really say that? Is he telling us the truth when he Reveals his plans for us. Is he really in control? If he is, why has my life experienced so much pain and suffering and hardship? What he says, what he promises, and what we experience often seems so different. Why should we believe him? He says he is with us. He promises that he's with us. But most days he feels so far away. All these questions cloud our vision, obscuring the face of a God who loves us so that we are always slow to recognize him in our lives and even slower to listen when he bids us come and follow him. The sin inside our own souls blinds us so deeply to our spiritual reality and the God who desires to help us, we end up running from him or failing to recognize him at all. We all have a fatal tendency to miss the evidence of God's love for us in a million different ways and reasons. But the wonderful news we find here is that our God doesn't wait for us to notice his presence. Our Savior, our Lord, Jesus comes and walks alongside us and helps us see. Jesus rose from the dead so that we might actually recognize the love that our God has for all of his children. There's an old movie uh, called Harvey. Has anybody ever seen that movie? Okay, yeah. So it stars Jimmy Stewart, and it's a it, it sort of reflects our situation in a profound, but admittedly kind of strange way. So in the film, Jimmy Stewart has a best friend. Okay, he has a best friend, he's kind of a A town, not an outcast. People just think he's strange because his best friend happens to be a giant invisible rabbit named Harvey. Okay. So as the movie progresses, uh, you're never quite sure if this rabbit is real. But as the movie progresses, this psychiatrist that his family sends him to see is confronted with the reality that Harvey, whom he previously considered to be a figment of Jimmy Stewart's imagination, is actually real. And this shatters his worldview, and he has this wonderful uh, statement. He says, fly specks, fly specks. I've been spending my life among fly specks while miracles have been leaning on lampposts at 18th and Fairfax. Too often we exist among the fly specks. And we ignore God's presence because we are distracted by the broken world or our own preoccupations or those things that seem urgent but have no connection to the eternal. But notice how Jesus not only appears alongside the disciples but remains remarkably patient as they still don't recognize him. I can't help but thinking that Jesus might be having a little bit of fun, that he might find the humor in this situation. He didn't come up with like a disguise. He wasn't wearing, you know, Clark Kent glasses that, you know, prevent him, prevented the disciples from recognizing him. It must have been humorous talking to his friends as they just go on sharing their troubles and confusion. But Jesus knew that they were missing or misinterpreting the most important piece of the puzzle. If they understood one thing, one central thing, everything would make sense and fall into place. From their end, on their side of things, death had forever altered the picture. If Jesus died, then that meant he wasn't the Messiah. But they failed to properly consider that God retained the power to do the impossible. Because from God's perspective, death was not a roadblock to their salvation, but precisely the thing that God had used to revoke the power of Satan and cancel the consequence of their sin. In dying, Jesus defeated death itself. What never crossed the disciples' minds was that his death was part of, of God's plan was in fact the central piece of God's plan for the salvation of the entire world, and it meant that his resurrection was inevitable. And in his death on a cross, Jesus conquered sin and death forever. But even after Jesus had unpacked the entire Old Testament and illustrated God's movement through history up to the moment of the Messiah's death the two disciples were still what jesus describes as slow to believe can you imagine them in that moment politely saying to jesus at the end of their walk that sounds great but you don't you didn't really know him like we did you weren't there you didn't see him die this is a nice interpretation i'm glad you shared all this with us but you know we're sort of professional disciples we know better You can stay, of course, and eat with us tonight if you like. It's late. You can stay. That'd That'd be fine. Of course, their conclusion here shouldn't be condemned. In this world, death seems to always have the final say. They were making the best decisions they knew how based on the evidence they had. They're just like us. In fact, they could be us. Aimlessly walking along the way. They needed something to break through their confusion and gently wake up their heart and their mind and their soul. And amazingly, that's what happens. Stopping for the night, Jesus accepts their invitation to dinner and he reenacts the Last Supper. He even uses the same words, the same uh, pattern. He blessed the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And in that moment, when Jesus points back to the death His own death on the cross, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. For two disciples, confused about who Jesus was, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine flashed the identity of their Lord before their eyes by pointing back to the cross, allowing them to finally recognize him as savior of the world, the one who died so that they might live. From that time on, they were different. They fully understood who Jesus was, and that changed everything. Their identity, their sense of purpose, their place in the world, everything. Notice a few things here. First, notice the names of the disciples. One is named Cleopas. In the Greek, that translates into son of a renowned father. Cleopas and his unnamed friend were both so loved by God, he sent his only son to die for their sins On the cross so they might live with their heavenly father in eternity. What father is more renowned than that? The other disciple doesn't have a name, but it could be yours. In Jesus, we are all children of that renowned father, which changes how we think about ourselves, but also what we're supposed to be doing every day of our lives. Second, notice how their direction changes Once they understand who Jesus is, their whole demeanor is transformed. It's late in the day. The disciples said it was late in the day. But in that moment, they turn around from Emmaus and they go back to Jerusalem and immediately travel the seven miles back to the other disciples to share this new good news. Contrast this sprint where they know who Jesus is to the stroll Earlier in the day, they rush back into the darkness of night to proclaim that Jesus was Lord, that he was alive and had come to save the world. And who could blame their urgency? That is the same mission that we're asked to go on today in our world to rush into the darkness to proclaim that light has come. Their whole lives have been bathed in the bright, blazing light of morning. The fog was melting away, and they could not help but share it. Like a flash in the darkness, the meal they shared with Jesus led them beyond their confusion into the marvelous light of God's redemption. From then on, these disciples built their lives around Jesus because they realized that the death and resurrection of Jesus meant their God would always be walking by their side, even when they didn't see him. The hope that we find in the story of Cleopas and his friend isn't just that we can see Jesus every now and then, only on the mountaintop, but that we are free to recognize the eternal permanence of God's love for us, Notice, finally, that Jesus was with the two disciples before they recognized him. He was with them as they walked along with their faces downcast, confused and disheartened. And he was with them as they understood. He helped them to see that the love he had for them was always there, was never going to go away. Even when the fog of our own Sin and the bleakness of this broken world clouds our vision and hides the face of Jesus from our eyes. He is still there. Just because we cannot see him does not mean that he isn't there. Jesus is that bright and constant sun, burning away the shadows that surround and inhabit us, yearning to illuminate every moment of our lives with his love. And so if our lives seem dark, if they seem dim, full of confusion and tossed about by catastrophe or crisis, if we have not felt the warmth of God's presence in our lives for a moment or a season or even years or never at all hear this, our Lord has come. Our Lord is with us always. He is always there. Every moment, there is a light shining, cutting through everything that holds us back. The same Lord who has always been there is here now, and he is calling each of us home. Hallelujah. Amen.